0: I'm here today to talk about a disturbing question, which has an equally disturbing answer. My topic is the secrets of domestic violence, and the question I'm going to tackle is the one question everyone always asks. Why does she stay? Why would anyone stay with a man who beats her? I'm not a psychiatrist, a social worker, or an expert in domestic violence. I'm just one woman with a story to tell. I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard College. I'd moved to New York City for my first job as a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. I had my first apartment, my first little green American Express card, and I had a very big secret. My secret was that I had this gun loaded with hollow-point bullets pointed at my head by the man who I thought was my soulmate many, many times. The man who I loved more than anybody on earth held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me more times than I can even remember. I'm here to tell you the story of crazy love, a psychological trap disguised as love, one that millions of women, and even a few men, fall into every year. It may even be your story. I don't look like a typical domestic violence survivor. I have a BA in English from Harvard College, an MBA in marketing from Wharton Business School, I spent most of my career working for Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett, and the Washington Post. I've been married for almost 20 years to my second husband, and we have three kids together. My dog is a black lab, and I drive a Honda Odyssey minivan. (laughs) So my first message for you is that domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. It's everywhere. And my second message is that everyone thinks domestic violence happens to women, that it's a women's issue. Not exactly. Over 85% of abusers are men. And domestic abuse happens only in intimate, interdependent, long-term relationships. In other words, in families. The last place we would want or expect to find violence, which is one reason domestic abuse is so confusing. I would have told you myself that I was the last person on earth who would stay with a man who beats me. But in fact, I was a very typical victim because of my age. I was 22. And in the United States, women ages 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be domestic violence victims as women of other ages. And over 500 women and girls this age are killed every year by abusive partners, boyfriends, and husbands, in the United States. I was also a very typical victim because I knew nothing about domestic violence, its warning signs or its patterns. I met Connor on a cold, rainy January night. He sat next to me on the New York City subway, and he started chatting me up. He told me two things. One was that he, too, had just graduated from an Ivy League school, and that he worked at a very impressive Wall Street bank. But what made the biggest impression on me that first meeting was that he was smart and funny, and he looked like a farm boy. He had these big cheeks, these big apple cheeks, and this wheat blonde hair, and he seemed so sweet. One of the smartest things Connor did from the very beginning was to create the illusion that I was the dominant partner in the relationship. He did this, especially at the beginning, by idolizing me. We started dating, and he loved everything about me, that I was smart, that I'd gone to Harvard, that I was passionate about helping teenage girls and my job. He wanted to know everything about my family and my childhood, my hopes and dreams. Connor believed in me as a writer and a woman in a way that no one else ever had. And he also created a magical atmosphere of trust between us, By confessing his secret, which was that as a very young boy starting at age four, he had been savagely and repeatedly physically abused by his stepfather. And the abuse had gotten so bad that he had had to drop out of school in eighth grade, even though he was very smart. And he'd spent almost 20 years rebuilding his life, which is why that Ivy League degree and the Wall Street job and his bright, shiny future meant so much to him. If you had told me that this smart, funny, sensitive man who adored me would one day dictate whether or not I wore makeup, how short my skirts were, where I lived, what jobs I took, who my friends were, and where I spent Christmas, I would have laughed at you because there was not a hint of violence or control or anger in Connor at the beginning. I didn't know That the first stage in any domestic violence relationship is to seduce and charm the victim i also didn't know that the second step is to isolate the victim now connor did not come home one day and announce you know hey this all this romeo and juliet stuff has been great but i need to move into the next phase where i isolate you and i abuse you So I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and co-workers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening and he told me that he had quit his job that day. His dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me. Because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of this city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family and move to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York and my, my dream job. But I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed, and I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. And here's where those guns come in. As soon as we moved to New England, you know that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe, He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed, and the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream, and he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the 10 bruises on my neck had just faded, and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were going to live happily ever after, because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding, and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never going to hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach, and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. I was mistaken in thinking that I was unique and alone in this situation. One in three American women experiences domestic violence or stalking at some point in her life. And the CDC reports that 15 million children are abused every year, 15 million. So actually, I was in very good company. Back to my question, why did I stay? The answer is easy. I didn't know he was abusing me, even though he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview. I never once thought of myself as a battered wife. Instead, I was a very strong woman in love with a deeply troubled man, and I was the only person on earth who could help Connor face his demons. The other question everybody asks is, why doesn't she just leave? Why didn't I walk out? I could have left any time. To me, this is the saddest and most painful question that people ask. Because we victims know something you usually don't. It's incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser because the final step in the domestic violence pattern is kill her. Over 70% of domestic violence murders happen after the victim has ended the relationship, after she's gotten out, because then the abuser has nothing left to lose. Other outcomes include long-term stalking, even after the abuser remarries, denial of financial resources, and manipulation of the family court system to terrify the victim and her children, who are regularly forced by family court judges to spend unsupervised time with the man who beat their mother. And still we ask, why doesn't she just leave? I was able to leave because of one final sadistic beating that broke through my denial. I realized that the man who I loved so much was going to kill me if I let him. So I broke the silence. I told everyone, the police, my neighbors, my friends and family, total strangers. And I'm here today because you all helped me. We tend to stereotype victims as grisly headlines, self-destructive women, damaged goods. The question, why does she stay, is code for some people for it's her fault for staying. As if victims intentionally choose to fall in love with men intent upon destroying us. But since publishing Crazy Love, I have heard hundreds of stories from men and women who also got out, who learned an invaluable life lesson from what happened, and who rebuilt lives, joyous, happy lives, as employees, wives, and mothers, lives completely free of violence, like me. because It turns out that I'm actually a very typical domestic violence victim and a typical domestic violence survivor. I remarried a kind and gentle man, We have those three kids. I have that black lab, and I have that minivan. What I will never have again, ever, is a loaded gun held to my head by someone who says that he loves me. Now, right now, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating, or wow, how stupid was she? But this whole time, I've actually been talking about you. I promise you, there are several people listening to me right now who are currently being abused, or who were abused as children, or who are abusers themselves. Abuse could be affecting your daughter, your sister, your best friend right now. I was able to end my own crazy love story by breaking the silence. I'm still breaking the silence today. It's my way of helping other victims. And it's my final request of you. Talk about what you heard here. Abuse thrives only in silence. You have the power to end domestic violence simply by shining a spotlight on it. We victims need everyone. We need every one of you to understand the secrets of domestic violence. Show abuse the light of day by talking about it with your children, your coworkers, your friends and family. Recast survivors as wonderful, lovable people with full futures. Recognize the early signs of violence and conscientiously intervene, de-escalate it, Show victims a safe way out. Together, we can make our beds, our dinner tables, and our families the safe and peaceful oases they should be. Thank you.
1: The list of commandments was deliberately and artificially inflated to get it up to ten. It's a padded list. Here's what they did. About 5,000 years ago, a bunch of religious and political hustlers got together to try to figure out how to control people, how to keep them in line. They knew people were basically stupid and would believe anything they were told, so they announced that God had given them some commandments up on a mountain when no one was around. God had given them the Ten Commandments. But let me ask you this. When they were sitting around making this shit up, why did they pick ten? Why ten? Why not nine or eleven? I'll tell you why. Because ten sounds official. (laughs) Ten sounds important. They knew if it was eleven, people wouldn't take it seriously. Say, what, are you kidding me? The eleven commandments? Get the fuck out of (laughs) here. The ten... Ten sounds important. Ten is the basis for the decimal system. It's a decade. It's a psychologically satisfying number. The top ten, the ten most wanted, the ten best dressed. So having ten commandments was really a marketing decision. (laughs) And to me, it's clearly a bullshit list. It's a political document artificially inflated to sell better. I'm going to show you how you could reduce the number of commandments and come up with a list that's a little more workable and logical. We're going to start with the first three, and I'll use the Roman Catholic version, because those are the ones I was taught as a little boy. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt keep holy the Sabbath. Right off the bat, the first three, pure bullshit. (laughs) Sabbath. Sabbath day, Lord's name, strange gods, spooky language, spooky language, designed to scare and control primitive people. In no way does superstitious nonsense like this apply to the lives of intelligent, civilized humans in the 21st century. You throw out the first three commandments, you're down to seven. Next, honor thy father and mother, obedience, respect for authority just another name for controlling people. The truth is, obedience and respect should not be automatic. They should be earned. They should be based on the parent's performance. (laughs) Parent performance. Right? Some some parents deserve respect. Most of them don't. Period. (laughs) You're down to six. Now, in the interest of logic, something religion is very uncomfortable with, We're going to jump around the list a little bit. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Stealing and lying. Well, actually, these two both prohibit the same kind of behavior. Dishonesty, stealing and lying. So you don't need two of them. Instead, you combine them and you call it, thou shalt not be dishonest. And suddenly, you're down to five. (laughs) And as long as we're combining, I have two others that belong together. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Once again, these two prohibit the same kind of behavior, in this case, marital infidelity. The difference is coveting takes place in the mind, and I don't think you should outlaw fantasizing about someone else's wife. Otherwise, what's a guy gonna think about when he's waxing his carrot? (laughs) But, But marital fidelity is a good idea, so we're gonna keep the idea and call this one, thou shalt not be unfaithful. And suddenly, we're down to four. But when you think about it, honesty and fidelity are really part of the same overall value. So in truth, you could combine the two honesty commandments with the two fidelity commandments and give them simpler language, positive language instead of negative, and call the whole thing, thou shalt always be honest and faithful, and we're down to three. (laughs) Thou shalt, thou shalt, they're going away, they're going away fast. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, this one is just plain fucking stupid <laughs> coveting your neighbor's goods is what keeps the economy going <laughs> and all right your neighbor gets a vibrator that plays oh come all ye faithful you want to get one too coveting creates jobs leave it alone you throw out coveting, and you're down to two now, the big honesty and fidelity commandment, and the one we haven't talked about yet, thou shalt not kill, murder, the fifth commandment. But when you think about it,
0: <laughs> when you
1: think about it, religion has never really had a big problem with murder. Not really. More people have been killed in the name of God than for any other reason. All you have to do is Uh All you have to do is look at Northern Ireland, the Middle East, Kashmir, the Inquisition, the Crusades, and the World Trade Center to see how seriously the religious folks take Thou shalt not kill. The more devout they are, the more they see murder as being negotiable. It's negotiable. You know? It depends. It depends. It depends on who's doing the killing and who's getting killed. So, with all of this in mind, I leave you with my revised list of the two commandments. Thou shalt always be honest and faithful to the provider of thy nookie, and thou shalt try real hard not to kill anyone, unless, of course, they pray to a different invisible man from the one you pray to. Two is all you need. Moses could have carried him down the hill in his fucking pocket. And if they had a list like that, I wouldn't mind those folks in Alabama putting it up on the courthouse wall. As long as they included one additional commandment, thou shalt keep thy religion to thyself. Department. In the bullshit department, a businessman can't hold a candle to a clergyman. Because i got to tell you the truth, folks. i got to tell you the truth. When it comes to bullshit, big-time, major-league bullshit, you have to stand in awe in awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims religion no contest no contest religion religion easily has the greatest bullshit story ever told think about it religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man He loves you he loves you and he needs money he always needs money he's all powerful all perfect all knowing and all wise somehow just can't handle money religion takes in billions of dollars they pay no taxes and they always need a little more Now, you talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit. Thank you. Thank you. But, thank you you very much. But I want you to know, I want you to know something. This is sincere. I want you to know, when it comes to believing in God, I really tried. I really tried really tried. I tried to believe that there is a God who created each of us in his own image and likeness, loves us very much, and keeps a close eye on things. I really tried to believe that, but I gotta tell you, the longer you live, the more you look around, the more you realize something is fucked up. (laughs) Something is wrong here. War, disease, death, destruction, hunger, filth, poverty, torture, crime, corruption, and the ice capades. Something is definitely wrong. This is not good work. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Results like these do not belong on the resume of a supreme being. This is the kind of shit you'd expect from an office temp with a bad attitude. And just between you and me, in between you and me, in any decently run universe, this guy would have been out on his all-powerful ass a long time ago. And by the way, I say this guy, Because I firmly believe, looking at these results, that if there is a God, it has to be a man. No woman could or would ever fuck things up like this. So, so, if, if, if there is a God, if there is, I think most reasonable people might agree that he's at least incompetent. And maybe, just maybe, doesn't give a shit doesn't give a shit, which I admire in a person, and which would explain a lot of these bad results. So rather than be just another mindless religious robot, mindlessly and and aimlessly and blindly believing that all of this is in the hands of some spooky, incompetent father figure who doesn't give a shit, I decided to look around for something else to worship, something I could really count on. And immediately, I thought of the sun. Happened like that. Overnight, I became a sun worshiper. Well, not overnight. You can't see the sun at night.
2: Freedom. This is what I call freedom. Where?